Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. My guest today is journalist, editor, and publisher Kenneth White, who is also the author of The Uncrowned King, The Sensational Rise of William Randolph Hearst, and most recently, Hoover, An Extraordinary Life in Extraordinary Times. I came across Mr. White's book on Hoover as part of my sort of biographies before bed ritual, which I've talked about in the show in the past. Um, and, you know, initially, I thought that Herbert Hoover would be a, an awfully dull subject, honestly, but I quickly learned how wrong I was. In fact, right after I finished it, I, I recommended the book on a previous show. Listeners, you'll, you'll know that. And I also contacted Mr. White's publisher, hoping that I might get a chance to talk with him about this really exceptional book. And he graciously agreed. And here we are. So, Kenneth White, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure, Michael. Now, before we get into Herbert Hoover, I'd like to ask a, a little bit about you. You've made a move from publishing executive to author. So how did that happen? Well, I, I did I did it all pretty much concurrently for, for a long time. I uh, was running a magazine publishing company in Canada at the time that uh, I wrote the Hearst book and uh, actually through most of the uh, uh, through most of the Hoover book, I continued to work uh, either as a publisher or in the telecom industry. So I had a day job through through all of that time. Uh, and I've just now, uh, since Hoover came out, dedicated myself to writing almost full time. But I've actually started publishing books uh, on, on my own, started a new uh, uh, publishing company doing nonfiction books for North American audiences. And, and so that that's uh, my day. Writing's my day job now and publishing books is my uh, uh, supplementary uh, work. Well, I think that that's a good piece of advice to any aspiring authors. It certainly helps to have a day job, at least at first, given the publishing industry. Uh, I, I get uh, William Randolph Hearst. That makes totally total sense for me, given your background. But Herbert Hoover, what what led you to write a book about a Herbert Hoover? You know, I, I was a reluctant <laughs> author of a Herbert Hoover book. I uh, had been, you know, I really enjoyed writing about late 19th century with uh, Hearst in his New York years. And, and uh, I, I thought when I was finished that I would like to move up a couple of generations do something in the early 20th century. And so I was poking around the First World War. And you can't read too much uh, in the First World War without uh, coming across Hoover. Uh, he was seen at the time. He was based in London, uh, where he was a mining executive, uh, as, as this extraordinarily competent fellow and if you wanted to get anything done you went and saw herbert and uh this didn't matter if you were in in business in politics uh, uh or, or in other uh aspects of public life hoover was uh, all over the place and uh had this profile of being uh incredibly uh capable and um and uh in a way that uh, is totally at odds with uh, everything else 
I'd read about. Anyway, during the Great War, Hoover uh, almost single-handedly fed the nation of Belgium, which was caught behind German lines and had its food supply, uh, almost all of its food was imported and its food supply was cut off by uh, the British blockade. So th th there was 8 million people in Belgium uh, in danger of starving. And Hoover, uh, based in London, started the Commission for Relief of Belgium and almost single-handedly uh, fed uh, 8 million Belgians through the course of the First World War. It was an act of humanitarian um, humanitarianism, pretty much unlike anything in, in uh, recorded history, let, let alone uh, American history. And I was fascinated by that, the uh, Hoover's Belgian adventure, uh, and the fact that he had uh, pretty much saved Belgium. It was Schindler's List on a, a colossal scale, and and I wanted to write about that. Uh, but every publisher I took it to said, "No, no, you got to do. You got to this Hoover guy. He sounds interesting. You got to do the whole biography." I'm not a big fan of presidential biographies. Uh, they they always strike me as uh, you know they they as as a genre. There's a lot of special pleading. You know this guy's a hero of republicanism and this guy's a hero of the Democratic Party. Uh, or this this is uh, the guy who uh, should be an example to the left or to the right. It's all very present minded and and uh, you know everybody gets into the ranking of the presidents and so on and and I, that. Uh, maybe it's because I'm a Canadian. Doesn't doesn't interest me so much. So I resisted uh, uh, the call to do uh, a biography. But the more I looked at Hoover, uh, the more there was to the whole uh, of his life. The fact that he was, you know, born in this little Quaker village on the American frontier, orphaned at uh, the age of nine, uh, sent around from one. Uh, branch of his family to another uh, uh, had a very difficult uh, adolescence. Felt he was treated as a chore boy by his uh, relatives. Uh, quite a sad boyhood on, on the whole. Finally, makes his way to Stanford University in its very first year. He was actually the very first student in the history of Stanford University. Um, in his early twenties, he goes to. Uh, Australia and begins to make a fortune in the gold mines there. He's he's running some of the richest gold mines in Australia in his uh, early twenties. Uh, in his mid twenties, he's uh, running the largest coal mine in in China on behalf of the Chinese government and uh, exploring for other mines in China. He gets. Uh, uh, caught up in the Boxer Rebellion, uh, goes back to London, makes a fortune as a mining tycoon, and then I say, and as as I said earlier in the First World War, uh, he switches gears entirely and becomes a humanitarian. Then he goes into public life, uh, and and uh, uh, first with Woodrow Wilson, he was in Wilson's War Cabinet. Then he serves. Harding and uh, Coolidge as a commerce secretary. Then he has his own presidency. 
spends the New Deal years uh, hating Roosevelt and and uh, uh, and and hiding in the wilderness. Finally, reemerges uh, after the Second World War when he's put to work again by Harry Truman and, and subsequently Eisenhower. He served five presidents. He could have served a sixth. Uh, John F. Kennedy was a huge Hoover fan, uh, but by that time, Hoover was in his 80s and uh, uh, wanted to dedicate his time to fishing. Um, so, you know, it was just this remarkable life, and you could tell pretty much the whole story of the early 20th century through Hoover. And and that, uh, that really captured my imagination. And uh, it, was, it was a chance to write about a guy who uh, is hugely misunderstood, who had a far more interesting life than people uh, appreciate. And uh, also, uh, when you follow that life, you get a whole other angle on the 20th century uh, than uh, you typically get uh, reading about uh, the Wilsons and the Roosevelts and, and so on. Hoover had a different perspective and uh, was involved in, uh, uh, in, in a greater range of activities uh, and uh, uh, different causes than than those other uh, gentlemen, and uh, as a result, uh, you get, uh, as I say, a very different window on the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can agree more. I, I, the thing that surprised me the most was his pre-presidential career. I mean, it was almost, almost kind of like a swashbuckling sort of sort of thing. All all sorts of interesting deals and and arrangements and things. And uh, I got the sense that. Certainly, some of the things that he did were maybe not entirely uh, above board. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, that might even be too fair. <laughs> uh, some were definitely below board. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there was, uh, uh, you know, the most notorious incident was in China when he uh, was uh, uh, working for the Chinese government uh, on its coal mines, but at the same time he had an arrangement with um, some capitalists back in London, and on their behalf, on behalf of the London uh, firm, he uh, took advantage of the dislocation and the confusion during the Boxer Rebellion to uh, uh, more or less extort the uh, largest uh, coal mining operation in China from, from uh, its rightful owners. And, um, and I, he ended up in court in uh, London for that and was uh, treated quite harshly uh, by the judge in the trial and, and his firm had to uh, essentially give the mine back uh, to to the Chinese, and there were reports that came out at trial of, of Hoover um, uh, threatening uh, his uh, Chinese counterparts with uh, violence and, and even waving a gun around at one point in order to get his deal done. Um, so that that's, um, e even for the time, 
it, it was egregious uh, behavior on, on behalf of a businessman and uh, w- was understood as such. So, yes, he has uh, quite a bit to answer for in, in his business career. The guy was absolutely determined to make a success of his, uh, himself. Uh, he felt that he'd been, you know, uh, mistreated, uh, abused in, in his uh, early years, and he was going to make his way in the world and show everybody whatever it took. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, his uh, behavior was, uh, even by his own standards, uh, wanting. And it seemed to me, well, one thing that really struck me was what an incredibly hard worker he is. And he also seemed to be quite a hard taskmaster, yet throughout his career, there seemed to be a group of people around him who were just almost maybe fanatically devoted, but very extremely devoted to him, despite that, how hard he worked and worked them. Yeah, it's funny with Hoover, you know, um, you always expect when somebody accomplishes so much in life that you'll find the seeds of greatness um, in, in his early life, but almost nobody expected anything of Hoover until he was, you know, uh, until he was graduated from university. Um, and uh, there, there was even some people who thought that, you know, he was slow. Other people thought he was uh, socially inept and, and uh, would never find his way. But the moment he gets out into the working world, uh, he is something of a, a wonder. He has enormous energy. He has an incredibly quick and retentive mind um, and uh, a great strategic sense in, in everything he does an ability not only to uh, uh, command all of the minutiae, all of the details of all of the projects he's working on, but to always to keep in mind at the same time the grand strategy behind everything he was doing. And he did work relentlessly. He, he drove himself incredibly hard, broke down twice uh, during uh, his business career because of uh, – his exhaustion and, and tension over the troubles that he was getting himself in. Um, and uh, as soon as he started in business and started to accomplish things, people took notice and they all realized uh, after uh, having some content, uh, contact with him that this was a really unusual guy uh, and he was going to do things and do places. So, uh, you get, you start to get when he's in his twenties. People uh, jotting down notes, uh, writing memos about Hoover, uh, um, uh, recording their impressions of him, which was really valuable to me because Hoover never was much of a letter writer, never had a diary or anything. So getting close to him uh, as as a biographer was uh, a difficult thing. Uh, except for the fact that so many people seem to recognize some 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 species of greatness in him, that they all took the time to you know write down their experiences, their conversations with him, and uh, to uh, uh, record for posterity that they had had some contact with this remarkable individual. And I really think of all the incredible things he did 
prior to his presidency, and you've talked about this before, the, the Belgian relief effort, which, I mean, for, for listeners, it's, it's totally worth just for the story of that to read Hoover, uh, not, not amongst all the other stuff. But it almost, after reading that, I thought, my God, why didn't this man win the Nobel Peace Prize? Because it seemed to me this was a, a colossal, just incredibly audacious, almost impossible-seeming sort of thing that he did, and truly, truly astonishing. Yeah, and and really, he should have won for it. Um, the uh, there there has never been uh, anything like this, and 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 it was uh, not just Belgium that that Hoover pulled off. Uh, you know, after the First World War, uh, he was uh, he went he he had in the last years of the war when America entered the war, he had come back to work with uh, Wilson helping to manage America's food supply during the war. And then when Wilson went to Paris for uh, the Treaty of Versailles uh, negotiations, um, Hoover went uh, with him. And as uh, Wilson did all of his negotiating with the other great powers, uh, Hoover was assigned uh, basically to reconstruct war-torn Europe after the uh, Great War. Uh, the war had stopped uh, uh, on a dime, and, and uh, the whole of the continent had to get back to civilian life. But so much of the economy had been on a war footing. All of the factories uh, were on a war footing. The railroads and highways were all had all been commandeered for, for the purposes of making war. Um, all of the food supplies uh, that had been uh, centrally handled uh, in, in service of military efforts. Uh, and so Hoover had to oversee in a very short period of time uh, a kind of an emergency um, uh, reconstruction of the European economy back to a civilian footing uh, and, and made sure that uh, – uh, populations that otherwise would have starved, especially in the defeated countries of uh, Germany and Austria, made sure that people got food uh, that that uh, had to be shipped in from outside their borders. Um, and he saved uh, many millions of more uh, lives there. And then in the Russian famine in 21, 22, he did the same thing. Uh, he's credited over the course of his life with saving uh, upwards of 100 million lives through his humanitarian efforts. And, and that's just mind-boggling. I, I can't think of uh, uh, anyone else who has uh, done anything like that, and especially not in the uh, devastating circumstances that he was operating in. You know, it wasn't like he was doing it uh, on a sunny day in peacetime uh, when everyone was happy and, and, and feeling rich. He was doing it when the whole world was at war when, and, and he was, you know, the, the, the logistical facts of, of uh, feeding Belgium uh, are just staggering because at the time, as I said, all of the ships, all of the food, all of the money has been commandeered to the war efforts. Uh, yet, yet Hoover manages to get um, uh, uh, fleets of ships uh, going around the world to five continents, picking up food uh, uh, by the uh, hundreds of tons and getting it all back 
to London, then to Belgium. And, and to do that, you have to go through the British blockade and through the German lines, and you have to get permissions of both governments. And those governments are at war. And here's Hoover with his Commission for Relief of Belgium flying his 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 own flag and using his own passports. He was somebody called him a piratical nation, pirate nation uh, uh, for benevolence. Um, and and uh, he he's sailing all this food uh, to Belgium at a time when uh, nobody else could get anything at all done. So it was an incredible feat. Yeah. Another thing that struck me was the reputation that he had on really from both parties for just such exceptional competence and how it seemed like both under uh, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, he would come into a situation and take a job and make it as big as possible, expand into so much. And presidents, again, of both parties actually leaned on him to an extent that just seemed remarkable to me. Yeah, he he really was uh, viewed as the most competent man in America at the time. And, and, uh, and, and rightfully so there was some exaggeration in, in, in some of the things, uh, uh, he he did, but uh, there, there's no um, no doubt that uh, he was the uh, most important uh, figure in in the Harding uh, cabinet uh, for uh, Harding's three three years, and and then again he played an enormous role in in Coolidge's cabinet, and he was in charge of all of. Uh, not only a lot of important files, but all of the really modern files, anything new that was happening in the world at that time, he was uh, deeply involved in. For instance, you know, automobiles were pretty new and, and uh, there was very little in the way of traffic safety uh, at, at the time. Most towns didn't even have stoplights and, and roads were unmarked and so on. And the death rate on, on the roads uh, with all of these uh, uh, fast cars out there uh, with uh, in, in a kind of a lawless uh, highway system, uh, the, the death rate was incredible. So Hoover uh, organized really the first important traffic safety uh, council and, and, and made uh, or started uh, the uh, great chore of uh, making uh, highways uh, relatively safe for for people when uh, the airline industry starts to come in the 20s you know the uh, uh, before it could be a civilian uh, passenger airline they had to do some work on safety because pilots you know the, uh, at the time uh, most of the pilots were uh, 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 well, the government hired a lot of pirates, uh, a lot of pilots to start uh, uh, delivering mail. And the, again, the death toll among them was, was quite high. So Hoover um, essentially um, organized uh, the nation's um, aviation industries and, and uh, laid the groundwork for a commercial aviation industry in, in the U.S. He was the first man to appear on television, and he uh, essentially organized uh, both radio and uh, broadcast regulation 
uh, in, in a way that we would still recognize today back in the 20s. So all, all of these very modern problems, Hoover was uh, the guy that uh, these, these governments uh, turned to because uh, nobody else had the energy, the capacity, the know-how to get it done. And that's what maybe more than anything else amazes me or what I, what I guess I didn't realize about Herbert Hoover. I mean, here's this man who is incredibly competent and has a track record not only of getting big things done, but of being okay with using government to get things done. But in the popular imagination, he's this kind of unimaginative, conservative guy who hated government and was just completely overwhelmed by the Great Depression. Yeah, that that is one of the uh, uh, fascinating things about Hoover. He when he came to Washington um, uh, in in the last years of the Great War, he he was viewed as a progressive, and he was a progressive. He did believe in using government uh, to uh, improve the quality of life of, of the American people, and he. Uh, had watched um, Lloyd George and some of the liberals in, in England and been impressed by their social welfare programs. And he brought some of that thinking back to the U.S. So journalists like Walter Lippmann thought Hoover was, uh, and Lippmann was at the time, uh, a leading intellectual in, in progressive circles, thought Hoover was one of the most uh, interesting men he'd ever met. Uh, and, uh, and, and they uh, all viewed him, all, all of the intellectual progressives at the time, as a man of great promise uh, for progressivism in America. They hoped that he would run uh, for, for president and uh, bring his new attitudes about uh, using government um, uh, for, for the public good to Washington. Um, and he remained, even when he decided to run uh, uh, as a Republican rather than a Democrat, it was never really clear what party he belonged to. Um, he he was uh, nevertheless always on the uh, progressive wing of the Republican Party all through the twenties, and uh, often at odds with Calvin Coolidge, who was extremely Coolidge is um, the embodiment of uh, the you know skinflint uh, caricature of Hoover that many of us uh, uh, had uh, in, in the past. Uh, Coolidge didn't believe in using government for anything. Wanted uh, people to. Uh, 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 if, 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 if people could go through their lives and not on a daily basis have any sort of uh, reminder that the federal government existed, that was great with Coolidge. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, Hoover vehemently disagreed with that approach and thought that uh, Coolidge was continually missing opportunities. Um, to help the American economy grow, to raise the quality of life for children, uh, uh, for the less fortunate, by not using the powers of the state. You know, in a lot of ways, that, that 
Teddy Roosevelt's my my favorite president. In a lot of ways, he seemed Hoover seemed to me to be kind of like a less flashy T.R. in in some in many instances, at least. Yeah, and he'd met Theodore Roosevelt. Um, the uh, I think Roosevelt was the first president that Hoover ever met, and I think Roosevelt was the reason that. Uh, Hoover, at the end of the day, decided to become a Republican. And um, if you read Hoover's uh, inaugural address from 1929, uh, there are many, many echoes of of Theodore Roosevelt in it. So I would agree. I I think that uh, uh, while he worked for um, three out of the four of uh, TR's uh, successors. Uh, he uh, and and only met T.R. on one occasion, as far as I know. Uh, he owes more to T.R. than any of the others. Right. What about that general or common belief or conception that Herbert Hoover was basically overwhelmed by the Great Depression? Is there is there much truth in that? Oh, there's some truth in it because it was an overwhelming event. It was um, one one of the things, Michael, that, um, you know, I, I was astonished by so many things that happened uh, during those years. That my, the, 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 my understanding of what went on uh, 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 turned out uh, to be in error in uh, in, in many ways, and 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 one of them was, uh, you know, I, I tended to think of the Great Depression as something that started in 1929. You know, the economy fell off a cliff when the stock market uh, crashed, and um, and and uh, it was this long, devastating depression lasted a decade, and. Um, and was one great coherent event. Uh, But when you get in there with Hoover and watch what happens on a day-to-day basis, it's something else entirely. Uh, The stock market crashed in 29, uh, but really nobody at the time thought that that was uh, a very big deal. And uh, all of the economists thought that if there would be uh, a recession after uh, the stock market crash of 29. It would be very brief and 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 not too uh, harsh. And uh, Hoover uh, believed that too. They all thought that the economy of the U.S., having roared through the 20s, was fundamentally sound. That there was, you know, a, a lot of um, uh, hype in the stock market, and that bubble had to be broken. But once it was things would uh, proceed as much as they had before. And uh, so Hoover's uh, response to the market crash in 29 was to tell people that uh, the fundamentals of the economy were uh, strong and that uh, they had nothing to fear uh, but fear itself. (laughs) Uh, and and uh, and and he encouraged them to keep spending, to keep uh, uh, working, and uh, uh, to simply wait for this brief storm to pass, and and to have confidence that uh, 
uh, America was uh, the world's leading economy and would continue to be the world's leading economy. And it, ha- it was a great engine of growth and it, it had just stalled temporarily, but it would come roaring back to life in a short period of time. And he was roundly applauded by, uh, you know, if, uh, the New York Times, the, the business papers at the time, the Harvard Economic Society for um his quick and uh, buoyant response to um, the uh, market crash. He'd also done some things that had never been done before. For instance, uh, he engaged in some uh, counter-cyclical spending, a big public works program, in in order to uh, boost employment through what he anticipated would be the brief uh, recession, and uh, he uh, encouraged other levels of government to do uh, the same, and and he had uh, encouraged an interest rate cut, and uh, he increased uh, government spending somewhat in order to prime the pump. So, you know, Hoover was, uh, um, uh, again, uh, on the ball, on top of the file, uh, took a progressive and and uh, and uh, uh, at the time uh, 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 an unprecedented uh, approach to uh, uh, combating the recession. But instead of being short and sharp, it got or short and and shallow. It, it got worse, and and it continued to get worse all through his term. And uh, it went through about four or five different stages uh, in in the course of his presidency, Uh, all of those stages different, uh, you know, the first part being the stock market crash, and then there was uh, unemployment uh, became a real issue in the U.S., and then Germany uh, crashed in 1931, and the international dimensions of the problem became really evident. It was one crisis after another for all of the four years he was in office, and there wasn't one response to, you know, there wasn't one great depression to fight. It was, he was putting out fires all over the place and all of the fires had to be fought differently. Um, and uh, he worked incredibly hard at all of these problems, uh, had some success uh, where nobody anticipated uh, he would have success, particularly in the international dimensions of the problems, uh, dealing with uh, European indebtedness and other consequences of, of the war. Um, and he um, uh, did make uh, available uh, uh, to the states uh, uh uh, public aid, which was something that the federal government had never done before in, in a recession. Um, so he he uh, was far more active and far more effective than uh, the the history books tell us. On the whole, however, uh, he couldn't dig the U.S. out of the depression during his term. I don't think anybody could have. Uh, I don't think anyone would have tried as hard as Hoover did. But the fact is, um, you know, it happened on his watch. And 
politics being what politics are, he had to well, and certainly, certainly, one could argue that even uh, FDR didn't dig the the United States out of the Great Depression, but it was rather World War II. Another another argument. Uh, but uh, I should also point out, right, that during this period, he was not working with the sort of modern economic statistics that we have today. But in fact, throughout his career, he pushed to create those sort of and gather those sort of statistics. I mean, that was a big part of what he pushed for at his time at the Commerce Department. Yeah, he was an empiricist. He believed you couldn't have enough data, enough information on any problem. And so he was one of the great statistics gatherers in in the history of American government. And uh, he was uh, as important as any one individual in bringing economists into uh, uh, the the daily operations of of Washington. He believed that... uh, uh, not only economists, but sociologists and other experts uh, had a lot to add uh, to um, problem solving in, in public life and that it shouldn't all be left to the politicians. In fact, if, as far as Hoover was concerned, it was better to uh, bypass the politicians, the guys in Congress, and use experts. He was always having conference of, conferences of uh, experts uh, in, in Washington. Whatever the problem arose, his answer was always, let's get the experts in. Um, and uh, uh, so, so he did a lot uh, to um, build databases and 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 uh, new um, think tanks and uh, other sources of knowledge and expertise. Uh, but when it came to the depression, um, it was a new phenomenon. Uh, 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 it was a phenomenon on a scale that nobody had encountered before. And the economists that he had done so much to uh, bring to Washington were really no help to him whatsoever. Um, One of the more amusing things uh, in the book, at least from the point of view of a a biographer, I was amused by it, was uh, there was a conference of uh, uh, economists, including several Nobel Prize winners or future Nobel Prize winners uh, in uh, Geneva, I think, uh, in, in the third year of the Depression. And uh, they deliberated for several days on the Depression and couldn't agree on anything, what caused it, uh, where it was really uh, located. They had uh, they had a list of causes that ran uh, something like 16 pages. And, and uh you know, they they literally couldn't even agree when to break for lunch. They they were useless to to anyone who was looking to them for guidance in how to uh, combat the depression. The things that we now know were uh, hugely important, especially in monetary policy. Uh, they, they hardly discussed at all. So. Um, uh, while we fault Hoover for not uh, being um, able to dig uh, America out of the recession, it's not like anyone was standing on the sidelines with uh, the answers 
uh, or with a plan of attack that that he somehow ignored. He was, uh, uh, to uh, an alarming extent, uh, on his own through almost all that time. And then it seems to me there's this break point. So there's the, the Hoover, the, the Hoover we've been talking about, and up to maybe 1933, I guess you say, Roosevelt comes into office. And in the book, I detect this pretty significant change. He almost seems to morph from a kind of a, a, a Roosevelt progressive Republican into sort of a Republican reactionary. I guess I, I, I want to know, is that about right? And, and if so, what do you think was behind that big change in, in Hoover? Well, if you look at the facts of Hoover's presidency, he was um, certainly far more progressive than uh, either of his um, Republican predecessors, Coolidge and and uh, uh, was arguably the most progressive president America had had till that time. Um, but he runs up against Franklin Roosevelt in, in 32 and, uh, and Roosevelt, uh, comes into office after defeating Hoover and takes everything that Hoover does further. Uh, people around Roosevelt uh, would later admit that Hoover laid almost all of the groundwork uh, for what Roosevelt did with the New Deal. But Roosevelt went much further than Hoover uh, would uh, ever have gone, for instance, on, uh, you know, job creation programs. Um, uh, Hoover uh, believed in public works uh, and, and put uh, uh, a lot more people on the public payroll, but Roosevelt just went uh, an order of magnitude further than than Hoover, and uh, Roosevelt intervened in the economy, setting prices, setting wages in ways that Hoover wouldn't dreamed of doing, and and uh, uh, even though Hoover had already. Uh, intervened in the economy in ways that uh, any of his predecessors would have blanched at. So um, uh, as far as Hoover was concerned, um, you know, he'd gone about as far as he thought uh, America uh, could go and still be true to its constitution and and its sense of itself uh, as a nation of uh, free individuals with uh, free markets and and uh, and an open society, and he thought that what Roosevelt was doing threatened that conception of uh, uh, America. Plus, he had a deep mistrust of uh, uh, Roosevelt on a personal level, even a hatred of him uh, for the things that um, Roosevelt had said. Uh, about him and about his record during the campaign. And, and uh, let's be honest, some of the things that Roosevelt said about Hoover uh, during the campaign were uh, completely uh, out of line and, uh, and, and frankly ridiculous. He would go on about how you know, Hoover was in league with the five men who uh, controlled the purse strings of the American economy, and uh, uh, and 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 
demagoguery like that uh and and he blamed hoover for having started the uh depression not not for having uh failed to combat it but for actually started it and being the cause of it which was again uh, a fantastic notion and uh and he demonized hoover uh and and made hoover uh into a laughing stock um uh, in america and that uh was something hoover could never forgive him for so uh hoover sensed that uh, roosevelt uh, had pushed too far with the new deal which by the way was shared uh, by other republicans by almost the whole of the business community and a lot of democrats um uh, was one of the things that uh, moved Hoover uh, to to the right, uh, and uh, uh, the other was, I think, just his uh, personal animosity towards uh, Roosevelt, and and he believed Roosevelt had fouled the nest of uh, progressivism, and uh, and and so uh, it, it, that had forced. Hoover uh, to um, em- embrace his conservatism, and, and then after the war, Hoover kind of reemerges, I guess, in a way. And, and you know, he was ex president for for quite a long time, from 1933 until he died in in '64. So, what was his post World War II ex presidency like? Well, just to finish up on your previous question oh, sure. and also to uh, begin to answer this one uh this is to me uh, another uh um uh, astonishing thing about hoover all of the people around roosevelt uh or the people closest to him uh, uh during during the um um uh, new deal years people like rex Tugwell and uh, Raymond Morley uh, said that Hoover laid the groundwork for the New Deal. So Hoover was an instrumental force in uh, uh, in uh, the New Deal consensus that dominated the Democratic Party from Roosevelt right through uh, uh, to to uh, the Lyndon Johnson years. Um, and so that's one huge uh, ideological stream in, in American life. Um, after uh, Hoover is out of office and after he has decided he is an enemy of the New Deal, uh, Hoover uh, begins making speeches in which he articulates uh, a conservative response to uh, the New Deal, saying that we can't trust government to do everything for us. Uh, We need to uh, rely on the uh, uh, private sector and on individual initiative to grow and expand the economy and improve American quality of life. And he he articulated uh, a a critique of the New Deal and a principled approach to conservatism that uh, would uh, inspire um, uh, American conservatives through uh, 
the 40s and and uh, the Eisenhower years uh, and uh, all the way through to Ronald Reagan. He it deserves to be considered not only a father of the New Deal, but a, follow, a father of the conservatism, uh, the modern American conservatism that grew up uh, in response to and as a critique of the New Deal. So you, Hoover uh, essentially giving birth to both of the major ideological currents in uh, America in the 20th century. Wow, and that's that's just truly that's just truly astonishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, and of course, that that legacy also includes. I mean, that, that that's a living legacy, I would argue, given that uh, well, right at, at his alma mater, Stanford, there's still the uh, the Hoover Institution, which is sort of carrying on in that in that tradition of of President Hoover. Yes, uh, and, and, and who, you know, Stanford was uh, one of the institutions that meant something to Hoover through the whole of his life, and he, he never lost contact with it and uh, uh, was um, had a home uh, on the campus through most of his lifetime and uh, was a great donor to to Stanford as, as well. He was uh, heavily involved in his post-political years uh, with um, boys and girls clubs across uh, America. He was uh, involved in uh, pretty much every major political issue that came up uh, in his lifetime. He, uh, uh, After he fought the New Deal, he opposed American entry in, into the uh, Second World War as did uh, a surprising number of people uh, at that time. And we kind of lost the fact that there was uh, uh, an almost overwhelming consensus uh, against American entry uh, to the war in in the uh, late 30s, early 40s. And Hoover was a leading voice, uh, a very influential one in in that. Uh, He uh, went to work for Truman, as I'd mentioned, uh, in, in uh, 1945, 46, he was sent overseas to help build or rebuild uh, the uh, European economy after the Second World War, essentially the same story done uh, after the First World War. And then um, because the federal government had expanded so dramatically during uh, the Second World War and uh, had sprouted through the New Deal and the war years so many new agencies and and, and uh, uh, departments and, and, and such a, a sprawling bureaucracy, uh, both Truman and President Eisenhower um, felt that the whole administrative branch needed to be reorganized and both of them turned to Hoover to uh, modernize the office uh, of the president and the entire executive branch. And he uh, oversaw that, uh, essentially laid the groundwork for the modern American presidency. Uh, so he, he kept uh, extremely busy all those years. And, and he was writing as well through uh, this time. Some of the writing uh, is not terribly readable, uh, particularly his long defenses of um, uh, his uh, performance uh, uh, during the uh, Great Depression, 
but he also wrote uh, memoirs of his uh, humanitarian years. He wrote an incredible book about Woodrow Wilson's uh, adventures uh, in uh, Versailles, and uh, uh, and and it's that that is probably uh, not only the only book written by one president about another president, but it's one of the best books ever written by a, a president. It's a, a terrific insight into what happened uh, in, in those critical uh, months in, in Paris. Um, and and uh, all, all in all, Hoover wrote something, some 30 books. Uh, he often wrote four or five at a time. Uh, up in his apartment in the Waldorf Towers in in New York, and and uh, uh, so the uh, work ethic he had uh, shown as a, as a young man never left him, uh, and he was lucky in his uh, health as well. He kept uh, 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 um, was able to continue to be vital right right up into his late 80s. Well, he invented that that game in the White House, Hoover Ball, wasn't it? <laughs> that kept him in shape for, for a while there. Uh, you know, it. I, I mean, I come away from reading the book feeling like Herbert Hoover is quite possibly one of the most uh, important, underappreciated, and underrated people of the entire 20th century, really. Well, I'm glad you got that. <laughs> That's what I. That's what I had thought too. By the time I'd uh, spent some time with him, um, and it was utterly uh, unexpected. You know, I didn't uh, have uh, that sense of him when I went into this project. But uh, I, I don't see how uh, you can come to any other conclusion uh, when you see the scope of his life. Uh, what he accomplished, what he was involved in, and uh, how influential he was. And, you know, at the time he died in the 60s, uh, it it was recognized that he was uh, a great figure of the century and one of the most important Americans uh, uh, of the uh, century. The Kennedys, uh, uh, both Bobby and Jack, uh, recognized uh, uh, Hoover as an extraordinary individual and, and one of America's uh, all-time great public servants. And, and uh, interestingly, in the obituaries that were written when Hoover died, um, uh, th- there were some who uh, uh, claimed him for the left right. and said that he was one of the greatest progressives uh, who ever lived. Will, uh, Walter Lippmann wrote one to that effect. And, and William F. Buckley uh, claimed him for the conservatives and said that he was you know, uh, 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 an important figure in uh, the growth of American conservatism and deserves to be celebrated as such. And almost all of the um, uh, obituaries in, in the Washington Post, New York Times, and so on, uh, agreed that uh, he had been um, unfairly maligned for his uh, handling of the Depression, that uh, there really wasn't anyone uh, who could have done uh, any better uh, than he had done in office, that he'd fought it uh manfully and and uh imaginatively uh but come up short they recognized that he was not 
the greatest sort of retail politician, wasn't a great salesman of his own initiatives. That was, I think, his greatest flaw as a politician. Couldn't always bring across uh, what he was thinking and what he was doing and and uh, inspire people uh, the way other politicians, particularly Roosevelt, can or could. Um, but it was recognized uh, at the time of his death that um, he had uh, done some pretty uh, amazing things uh but we've lost that uh it, it's not reflected in the historical record and uh that's one of the reasons that uh, i was uh, pleased to write the book uh to hopefully begin uh, what i'm sure will be a long slow process <laughs> right uh reintroducing him to the record and and getting uh him his due well well i certainly found it uh fascinating and it totally changed my view of herbert hoover so i definitely would encourage listeners to check it out uh, before i let you go uh uh what are you working on now well we've moved in uh, moved up another half century i'm working in the second half of uh, the 20th century and i'm particularly interested in in the 60s and and uh, you know it was a very tumultuous decade as we all know uh, but when we think of the 60s we tend to think of uh, you know the civil rights uh, revolutions the sexual revolution the war in vietnam and and so on uh, what i particularly interested is what uh, happened to american business in in the 60s uh, because it was really the last uh, great burst of uh, uh, productivity and uh, dynamism in in the American economy, and we've never really uh, since then um, managed to uh, see the same kind, the same pace of growth and and uh, innovation that we had back then. So I'm uh, spending a lot of time on the automobile industry, which was by far the largest. Uh, a piece of the American economy uh, and and what happened to business and and the auto industry and particularly um, in in the '60s. So uh, I'm uh, also spending time as a result with uh, an interesting cast of characters, including Ralph Nader and uh, again Bobby Kennedy and uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, all of whom were involved in one way or another at the time. So that's, that's about all I can say about it now. But uh, well, that, sounds, uh, that sounds great. I, I'm looking forward to it. Well, with that, we will close. Kenneth White, thanks very much. I really enjoyed talking with you today. It was a delight, Michael. Thanks very much, and good luck with the podcast. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguyspage. 
We're also on Twitter, at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.